Hello, and welcome to Words on Film, the spoken word podcast dedicated to moving pictures. I'm Dan Burke, your host and movie critic, and I'm here to tell you exactly what I think of some of the latest movies out right now. For this show, I have three brand new movies to review for you. All three of these movies have come out this week. There was one that actually came out on Wednesday. Uh, August 11th, but the other two came out on Friday, August 13th, Friday the 13th. It's always cool when, when that happens, it's even cooler when the 13th falls in October, but I have to check a calendar to, to figure out what the next year is going to be, where there's going to be Friday, October 13th. But regardless, there was one additional film that I saw that has a, that has a release date that hasn't been put out there yet. I'm not going to say what the film is, but it's a film that hasn't come out yet. It is still in post-production. And when I went to the screening of it, it was actually somewhat unfinished. So there were still some crowd scenes that hadn't been filled in yet. So I'm going to hold off on reviewing that movie for you until it opens up later. But in the meantime, I'm going to start off with films that are in theaters near you. Beginning with the first movie I'm going to be reviewing for you, which is Respect. This is the long-awaited 2021 biographical music drama film based on the life of American singer Aretha Franklin, who really needs no introduction. Uh, She died less than two years ago, or as of August 16th, it will have been two years since she died. What can I say about Aretha Franklin? The Queen of Soul, we all know her, and... Uh, She is regarded as the most influential female vocalist of the 1960s. She's also the very first woman, not just the very first black woman, the very first woman period to be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, which is not entirely accurate since she wasn't exactly a rock and roll star, but it doesn't really matter because I don't think anybody really thinks of it in, in that technical sense. But. In this movie, Respect, named after probably her biggest hit, but unquestionably her most career-defining hit, Aretha Franklin is played in adult form, and I think maybe even in late teen form, by Jennifer Hudson, who is probably one of the only actresses who could portray Aretha Franklin without lip-syncing to Aretha Franklin's music. Jennifer Hudson, as we all know, is a double threat. She can act as was demonstrated in Dream Girls, which came out 15 years ago, if you can believe it. But she also can sing really well, and she is an Oscar and a Grammy winner so far. And a lot of people thought that Jennifer Hudson might not top her performance in Dream Girls. And while it's questionable whether her portrayal of Aretha Franklin here would necessarily top that of her performance as Effie White in Dreamgirls, it certainly is on par with it, in my opinion, of course. And this movie details Aretha Franklin's life from approximately 1952, when she's a child singing in her father's church choir, to 1972, when she is an established artist, and makes a bold decision to release a live gospel album, which she does, And not too much of a spoiler alert because you can look this up later. This uh, gospel album that she released ended up being 
the best-selling gospel music album of all time. And I, and the, uh, ending epilogue says it was her best-selling album of all time. I don't know if that's necessarily true, but I'll take the movie's word on it. And also let's see what else. Uh, there are several impressive supporting performances in this film. Her father, the Reverend C.L. Franklin, who was a well-known um, public figure in his own right, is played by Forrest Whitaker from the very beginning of the movie to the very end, and Forrest Whitaker does a great job in, in this role. Audra McDonald plays Gen- uh, Aretha Franklin's estranged mother, uh, Barbara Siggers Franklin, And Audra McDonald is, of course, like Jennifer Hudson, a great actress and uh, singer, certainly uh, a legendary one at this point. And I'm not going to spoil what happens to Barbara Siggers Franklin, but we're introduced to her early in the movie. It's established that C.L. Franklin and Barbara Siggers Franklin are divorced, and Ms. Franklin gets to see her daughters, including Aretha, um, every once in a while. But I, I, I'm really, really tempted to, to spoil what happens, and it does happen in the beginning of the movie. I really want to tell you what happens to the character, but I, I really don't want to do that, so I'm going to hold back. But there are also some other rather impressive performances in this movie. I did say when I was going through my segment, What's Coming Up Next, last week, that Marlon Wayans co-stars in this movie as Ted White, who was Aretha Franklin's first husband, I believe, and not her last, but he starts off, of course, on his best behavior, but as their relationship progresses, he becomes more domineering and abusive, and I was expecting to be disappointed by Marlon Wayans and given the second rate comedies Marlon Wayans has been in, I've been disappointed in his performances before Marlon Wayans is actually really, really good in this film as Ted white. I think he, um, is probably best when he's, he's first introduced when he gets to be abusive and domineering I don't know if it's his performance, but it just seems like it's one of those characters we've seen before, which leads to probably one of the main weaknesses of this film in that it feels a bit formulaic. And I do realize it is based on a true story, but there are things that occur in Aretha Franklin's life and career that are dramatized here that I've seen in several other biopics before and not just ones that are easily comparable, like what's love got to do with it, for example. There are scenes of abuse. There are scenes where Aretha Franklin has an idea and the record company is not willing to go along with it, at least at first. There's an almost too brief segment where it delves into Aretha Franklin's alcoholism. And it almost seems like an obligatory scene where it shows Aretha Franklin in concert, barely able to hold it together. And she ultimately ends up fainting. I don't know how many other biopics that's been in, but it almost seems like a biopic cliche. With that said, I do think that while this movie 
sticks to a, a formula that is familiar uh, to anybody who's seen several biographical um, films about musicians like I have. I do think that Jennifer Hudson does a great job as Aretha Franklin. I'm so glad she didn't lip sync to Aretha Franklin's music. And I I think probably music scholars would be able to scrutinize the differences between Jennifer Hudson's voice and Aretha Franklin's voice. I don't think they should. Jennifer Hudson is definitely capable of singing Aretha Franklin songs incredibly well without... A, impersonating Aretha Franklin, and B, sounding like a person at karaoke night uh, belting an Aretha Franklin song. So, Respect, I think, is a serviceable film. I I also should note that it is directed by a woman by the name of Liesl Tommy. And Liesl Tommy is actually a, a director who's had several other movies. Excuse me. She's directed several other TV episodes up to this point, but this is her feature film debut. And while it has some weaknesses in terms of the way that uh, biographical movies go, and I did feel like the written epilogue at the end lacked some considerable information, not to mention relevant information. So for in, in other words, it listed a lot of Aretha Franklin's accomplishments, but I wanted to know about some of the other people in Aretha Franklin's life, like her father, C.L. Franklin, her sisters, and her abusive ex-husband, uh, Ted White. I wanted to know about them and what became of them. But I do think that the performances in the movie certainly elevated this movie to a level where it wasn't just another uh, obligatory biopic. And I also should note that Aretha Franklin herself, a few years before she died, actually wanted Jennifer Hudson to play her in a film. I think if Aretha Franklin were alive today and was able to see this film, she would not be disappointed, at least not in Jennifer Hudson's performance. And respect not only gets a lot of respect from me, but it also gets a marginal knockout. I do think that, again, for a first-time director of a feature film, Liesl Tommy does a really good job directing this movie, and I am very impressed with how it turned out. I thought there were a lot of very strong support, well, strong acting performances in general. Jennifer Hudson held her own as Aretha Franklin. There is no question about that. I also love the supporting performances by the likes of Forrest Whitaker, Marlon Wayans, Audra McDonald, Mark Marin, Tate Donovan, uh, Mary J. Blige, and several others. They, their performances did not disappoint. Jennifer Hudson's remaking Aretha Franklin's best known songs also did not disappoint. And I was just more impressed by this film than I was focusing on the cliches of certain biographical music dramas. I think if you look past the somewhat formulaic approach to Aretha Franklin's life, you will see a lot of great music and a lot of great performances, not to mention the set design and the costumes that really bring you back to that era it it really it i think it worked for me more than it didn't work
Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Free Guy. This is a film that takes place in a virtual universe of a video game platform. And Ryan Reynolds stars as the titular guy who we're introduced to first as basically a, a guy who lives in a video game universe, but he is not the guy who is controlled by the people playing this video game. He is what's called an NPC, which is a non-playable character. So he's basically an extra in a video game. And this is one of those platforms that other people can sign on and, and play. It's, it's one of these virtual universes that takes off. Very, I think th there are several um, platforms to which you could compare it, like World of Warcraft, for instance, or maybe even IMVU with more uh, gun violence. But that's really the only comparison I can make. I'm not a big video game guy, or at least I'm not big into the uh, new school video games on Xbox or PlayStation Station 5 or anything like that. I'm very much an old school video gamer. Anything N64 and back, I'm I'm big into those. Yeah, just just plug in a Super Nintendo or Sega Genesis, pop in a game, I'm as sound as a pound. But again, I'm an old school video gamer. So, I'm more of a movie guy than a um <laughs> than a video game guy undoubtedly. But this movie um, is following somewhat of a risky trend of video game movies. With the exception of the Sonic the Hedgehog movie, a lot of video game or films about video games have been disappointing because sitting down and playing a video game versus watching a movie are two different experiences. And I do think that the filmmakers here had the right idea when they when they realized the differences between the two. My issue with this movie was not the video game aspect of it. I actually found those to be probably the best parts of the movie. I thought there were really good special effects when it came to creating this um, free city, as as it's called in the, in the movie, the, the video game within the film. And I did think it was cool how... It was a city and you had these characters who were going about their daily lives, walking from one place to another, presumably to their jobs or maybe to home. And in the background, there'd be all these uh, war tanks and people shooting machine guns and all this chaos. And these extra characters would think nothing of it. I thought that was actually one of the cooler and one of the actually ironic parts of this film. My biggest issue with Free Guy, though, was Ryan Reynolds himself. A lot of people say that Ryan Reynolds is charming and charismatic. I really don't see that. Charismatic, maybe. Charming, I don't exactly know because he hasn't won me over. Ryan Reynolds, to me, particularly in comedies, is unbearably smug. And I think in this film... His smugness just kind of overtakes and undermines what originality could be perceived in this film. I wanted to 
root for a guy who's just a background character, but through a glitch in his computer system, he develops almost his own algorithm that makes him an individual character that other people in the real world can watch and actually like. I liked that concept. What I didn't like was Ryan Reynolds' approach to it. Because I was thinking, if you were going to make a movie about a guy who is not real, who for whom I can still root, I'd really like it to be somebody who's likable. Somebody like Paul Rudd, uh, Mark Ruffalo, Jeremy Renner. Somebody like that. You know, somebody who has maybe not necessarily established themselves as a bona fide movie star, but somebody who is certainly the real kind of charismatic where people who may not necessarily be attracted to them like Ryan Reynolds would still want to root for them. And I do get that Ryan Reynolds character is supposed to be attractive. And there, there is actually one funny part where they're interviewing people who are either playing or watching the game. And there's a girl who's in high school who says about the guy character played by Ryan Reynolds, I would tap that algorithm. That's really funny. Or I would tap those pixels hard. I think that's what she actually said. That's funny. And maybe that's not quite the same with a a guy like Paul Rudd. But again, Paul Rudd is a likable guy. And if he were the guy, the guy named guy in this movie, I would be willing to root for him a lot more because... Paul Rudd has relatability that Ryan Reynolds doesn't have. I know Ryan Reynolds is trying to be relatable, but he really isn't. And he's also, I think when it comes to comedies, even the Deadpool movies, which were probably his best comedies, but still not great films, he reminds me more of a of a frat guy who can make his frat brother, brothers laugh, but not very many other people. He's also kind of like the popular guy who wants to be the class clown who made one funny joke um, a little while ago in class. And that one funny joke has been buried by 20 to 25 bad puns and other really bad jokes where you just want him to shut up and sit down. I've gone to school with people like that before. And while I don't hate Ryan Reynolds, I don't buy him as a funny guy in a movie, or at least not one of those relatable guys. And I think that's where the movie suffered quite a bit. I actually got more into the story that takes place in the real world amongst the game programmers who are actually, first of all, working for the large game company that created this virtual world, but they also... Um, had an algorithm for another game, which um, takes place in a utopia where people just walk around and observe, which doesn't sound like a particularly great game to me, but I guess in the context of this film, it's a good idea. But the evil uh, corporate bad guy here who takes their idea and makes Free City into it is played by Taika Waititi, who really does play it over the top, sometimes a little bit too much. In fact, he was more restrained when he played the imaginary Adolf Hitler in Jojo Rabbit than he was here. So that's saying quite a bit. And also, he does things that are really not particularly smart, especially when he tries to 
kill this, this guy character by doing everything uh, from shutting down the game. Um, and there, there is one scene where he tries to destroy the game by taking an ax and wrecking a, a number of clouds. Um, and by clouds, I mean, cloud servers, but first of all, when you're watching the scene and I'm, I'm spoiling it for you to make a point, he's taking an ax and ramming it into electrical circuits. It is a wonder he doesn't get executed himself. And secondly, couldn't you just, if you were so desperate to stop this guy, couldn't you just shut down the whole server? I mean, wouldn't it be easier to just flick the off switch? And that's where the movie kind of loses its plausibility for me. I suppose some people would find it fun, but Ryan Reynolds' snarkiness gets old really fast. And I couldn't help but compare this movie to better films that have come out over the years that have similar themes about the relationship between the video game world and the real world. And I'm talking about movies like, well, not about video games, but the Truman show particularly came to mind, but also in in terms of the video game, real world uh, analogy, Wreck-It Ralph, I think did it better as did ready player one, Not the Emoji Movie, but I felt like this film was a little bit more in common with the Emoji Movie than it probably intended. But I will give it this. The Emoji Movie had a lot of shameful product placement. Free Guy didn't. But it didn't have as many laughs as I would have liked. There were some parts that I thought were funny, like some impressive cameos by the likes of Channing Tatum, Chris Evans, and, and I'm not making this up, Alex Trebek made one, yeah, the host of Jeopardy, Alex Trebek, made a cameo here before passing on, and this film was released posthumously, but actually this film was was originally planned to be released in 2020, but we all know why that didn't happen, but Free Guy had a lot of really interesting good ideas, it was just a A little bit of an over-the-top performances by Ryan Reynolds and Taika YTT that really took this back for me, in addition to a number of subplots that didn't really tie together or materialize, and I felt bogged down the original story. Plus, to care about a character... Well, first of all, I'll say this. Free Guy gets my rating of a strikeout. Again, it's not a terrible movie. It's certainly not as bad as the emoji movie, but for me to care about a character in a universe that doesn't actually exist, I really have to have a person playing the character about whom I can care. When it's somebody as snarky and as smug as Ryan Reynolds, and he's just going through similar um, story arcs as the main character in the Lego film, I just couldn't do it. So Free Guy is a pass for me, in addition to the fact that they could have had, uh, I guess for me, his name is supposed to be Guy because he's supposed to be a generic character, but the name Guy, as in guys whose names are actually Guy, always kind of annoyed me. Kind of like guys who were named Junior, or maybe to another extreme, guys who were named Tucker. Who comes up with these names? I I don't know. But overall, there was a lot that Free Guy could have been, but it just narrowly missed the mark. And if somebody better than Ryan Reynolds 
could have been the lead in this movie, I probably would have liked it a lot more. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is a film that is semi-brand new. It premiered on Netflix on August 11th, uh, 2021, and the movie is The Kissing Booth 3. This is a movie I felt a bit obligated to see, not because I liked the originals, although I did actually uh, appreciate them for what they were, but I think by the time the third film came about, the movie ran out of uh, gas for me. For for instance, it takes place the summer after the events in The Kissing Booth 2, and our protagonist, L, who's played by Joey King, is trying to decide between two great schools um, to which to attend after um, the summer is over. There's either UC Berkeley, where her best friend is going, or Harvard, where her um, boyfriend and the older brother of her best friend is going. So she's torn between two great uh, schools, and I have no sympathy for her whatsoever. And this movie takes place in L.A. It's always beautiful there, and it is about rich, beautiful people with problems. And I do get that. It doesn't really matter in terms of storytelling perspective how good-looking or how not-good-looking the protagonists are or how rich or poor they are. Rich people, as well as good-looking people, can tell really good stories, but... The Kissing Booth 3, first of all, has the Kissing Booth tacked on at a very uh, inconvenient time, and it feels tacked on too. Secondly, I think needless to say, given my first point, the Kissing Booth itself has no factor into the plot of this film. And third, it just felt like one big melodrama. There, there was these, you know, two best friends who have been best friends since childhood, which I can certainly appreciate. Those kinds of friendships are rare. I certainly don't exactly have those. I have best friends from high school with whom I still keep in touch, but the ones that I grew up with since kindergarten, I haven't been in touch with them for years, and that's okay. It's just all part of growing up. But they have this list that they that they keep. The first list is a list of rules for them. And they're always referring to these rules like they are the 10 commandments. And they're written on a rather shoddy uh, sheet of paper. And I'm just thinking maybe it's just me being a guy, but of all people who are friends, who actually writes rules about their friendship? That does doesn't blah, that just doesn't seem like what kids do um at any point and i just don't really 
no, um, <laughs> maybe people are getting behind this. Maybe this is something to which people can relate. But to me, the rules seemed like a, a MacGuffin rather than a really poignant take on growing up. And there are a lot of tears shed in this movie, despite the fact that our main characters spend the summer in a beach house, a beautiful beach house that the big bad realtors are going to purchase and give the original owners millions of dollars to have. So they're having this one uh, great last uh, summer at the beach house and they throw parties that are so unrealistically elaborate. And of course, everyone in the film looks great. So I don't exactly know. I I don't want to slam on this film because it's a movie that takes place in Los Angeles amongst privileged uh, kids because I didn't grow up uh, in Los Angeles. I actually grew up in an opposite place of Los Angeles, not only a place that's on the opposite coast, but also a place that was not particularly well to do. And I did not have the kind of idyllic summer that these kids have. So I don't want to seem like an old man on the porch who's screaming at these kids to get off my lawn and telling them that youth is wasted on the young. I don't want to be that kind of person at all. But as I was watching this film, I was feeling like that. And I do acknowledge that I watch all different types of movies, all different genres about all different sorts of people. There is no way, no matter how many experiences I've had, that I will be able to relate to every single main character in a film. And I get that. And there are films that are not made for me. And I think that The Kissing Booth is, uh, it's based on a series of books. And it is obviously for young girls, preteen to teenage girls, which I can certainly appreciate, but I thought the problems in this movie were created by this very, very, uh, in my mind, selfish girl who does not know how well she has it. And that bothered me. But then again, maybe there are women of all different backgrounds, maybe even of different colors and creeds who would relate to this film on a a certain other level, but I just couldn't. And when the protagonist has been accepted to one of the most prestigious universities in the world and is still hemming and hawing about what school to which to attend and also trying to maintain a relationship with her best friend and putting that above all else. I just didn't really get into that. And also I did think that the, the problems in this film kind of piled on where these are problems that other people would kill to have. Like for instance, there's a love triangle from the second film that reemerges in the third film where it didn't need to reemerge. And I say that because the kissing booth three has a running time of one hour, 55 minutes. So nearly two hours by the 75% mark. In other words, about an hour and a half into the film, it seems like 
Elle learns the errors of her ways and begins tearfully apologizing to those whom she hurt. But then you realize you have 30 more minutes left to go in this movie. And I began to think, my God, what more narratively does this movie has to have to go over? I just didn't really think that some of the subplots needed resolutions, but I did think that the filmmakers must have tried to cram in as, as much resolution as they could. And unfortunately that really made the film suffer and feel incredibly overlong. So I did watch this film and I laughed at a lot of it, but I will acknowledge that the movie does have more interesting characters and characters with more chemistry than the 50 shades movie did. But the fact that I like this movie a little bit better than 50 shades is not saying a lot. I think 50 shades was unabashed melodrama and my issue with 50 shades was not that I expected it to be a great film, but I expected it to be sexy. And similarly, I felt like the kissing booth movie, I thought would have been a little bit more poignant and relatable. And I felt like there was a bit more poignancy with the first two films. And I did feel like I bent over backwards to give the first two kissing booth movies, the benefit of the doubt. But this third one is completely unnecessary. It was ranked and maybe still is ranked as of the recording of this show as the number one most watched film on Netflix right now. But I don't know just because it's the number one most watched Netflix film that necessarily means the most beloved. I doubt it. But The Kissing Booth 3 gets my rating of a strikeout because not only is The Kissing Booth movie not really there and only tacked on on the end just to serve a purpose to the title of the film, but also, and maybe this bothers me too, when I think of kissing booths that happen at carnivals, I think to myself, there is no way there is ever going to be a kissing booth at a carnival anymore. Not only because of the spread of germs and possibly not just the common cold, but mono, but also the times in which we've been living right now. So maybe that's my issue with the kissing booth movies. The fact that there aren't going to be any kissing booths for the foreseeable future. Even if I, I mean, I wouldn't kiss a stranger because I have a girlfriend, but even if I didn't have a girlfriend and I felt motivated to kiss a stranger, who knows that that's just inviting the spread of disease. Maybe I'm overthinking this, but maybe my other problem with this movie is it doesn't seem to acknowledge that we're living in a, a time in our um, American history where there is a pandemic going on right now. It's still spreading, and the characters in the movie are not aware of this. Maybe I'm overthinking this, but The Kissing Booth 3 is a strikeout. However, I am acknowledging that it is not a movie that was made for me, but it is just my opinion. Take it as you will.
Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. I have reviewed all the films that I have to review for you for this show. As I said before, well, at the very beginning of my show, there is a movie that I saw a sneak preview of that is in post-production. When I saw it, it wasn't completely finished. And I really, really want to review that movie for you for two reasons. One, because I have a very strong opinion about it. I'm not going to tell you whether it's positive or negative. And two, because I really wish I had another movie to review for you right now. Because I usually start my segment, What's Coming Up Next? But the Wi-Fi in my studio has gone down again. And by my studio, I mean the studio from which I'm recording. And I'm really, really bummed about that because... I really need this Wi-Fi, but I'm getting the dreaded dinosaur that's telling me there's no internet, or at least the dinosaur that roams over the words, no internet. I shouldn't hate that dinosaur. It's not the dinosaur's fault, but what I will do is while I can't tell you right now, the movies that will be premiering in theaters this coming weekend, I will give you the movies that are going to be released on streaming platforms, beginning with Netflix. So I'm going to focus primarily on Netflix originals, but I'm also going to mention some other movies that will be appearing on the platform. Like, for instance, on Monday, August 16th, the movie Walk of Shame. It's not a Netflix original. It's a movie that came out back in 2014. That will be appearing on Netflix. I don't know if it's going to be for the first time. Somehow I doubt it. But this is a comedy that stars Elizabeth Banks as a popular um, news anchor who also looks great in a yellow dress. And she finds herself on a walk of shame, not the kind of walk of shame you hear about in college. And maybe you've seen some people who have come or who have gone on the walk of shame. I certainly have myself, but I've made no judgments about them At all, but there's another kind of walk of shame that Elizabeth Banks has in this movie, which actually I have not seen. I've been hosting the show Words on Film since 2014, but I see about maybe 200 to 250 movies a year, literally. So Hollywood comes out with about 450 to 500 movies a year. So there are undoubtedly movies out there that I have not seen. I see a vast majority of the major ones that are either out in theaters near you or premiering on uh, streaming platforms like Netflix, but I have not actually um, seen every movie in a given year. But Walk of Shame, if I do see it, it's probably for my own enjoyment. That is a film that I will not be reviewing for you next week. There is a documentary that is a Netflix original that will be premiering on Uh, Netflix, which is called Untold Deal with the Devil. I really want to tell you the plot of this movie, but unfortunately, the Wi-Fi is out. And I have heard from a loyal listener who's told me that I do sound a bit disorganized when I give you the movies that are going to be coming out because I look them up live on my laptop. And yeah, that is valid, but I only have so many hours in the day. But Deal with the Devil, to me, sounds like a true crime documentary, which Netflix is being particularly fond of playing. Um, 
but I'll, I'll look out for it and I'll let you know what I think. On Wednesday, August 18th, there are actually going, going to be three movies that are going to be premiering. The first one is a documentary, and I do not need to tell you that this is a true crime documentary because this one is called Memories of a Murderer, The Nilsson Tapes. Who Nilsson is, I don't exactly know, but he apparently created some tapes the same way Ted Bundy did, and Netflix released a great documentary on Ted Bundy, which was actually told from Ted Bundy's mouth uh, himself because there was a journalist that actually recorded Ted Bundy talking about his life and his exploits. And again, Ted Bundy is a fascinating character. He was evil and certainly not condonable how he uh, spent his adult life and maybe even some of his child life, but you can't deny that he is a fascinating figure. Maybe Nilsson will be the same way. I don't know, but I'll let you know if I review this documentary for you on next week's show. Another film that's going to be premiering is called out of my league. Now there has been a film actually released about 10 years ago, which was produced by Judd Apatow and stars Jay Baruchel, who's been in several notable Judd Apatow movies and supporting roles. That one is called She's Out of My League. And I didn't see it, but I remember hearing that it was a rather predictable romantic comedy. Out of My League, not She's Out of My League, is a Netflix original. It might be a comedy. I don't exactly know. It might be about dating, or it might actually be about sports. Out of My League might be literal in in that respect. But It's a film that I will look out for, and if um, I review it, I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. Another film that's coming out that is a Netflix original on Wednesday, August 18th, is The Secret Diary of an Exchange Student. This sounds particularly interesting. I'd like to think maybe it's an American film, or it could be about an exchange student from another country coming to America, or vice versa. Either way, that would be a very interesting movie. Uh, I would imagine that it might be a comedy. I don't entirely know, but I will let you know what I think if I see it on next week's show. And I'm checking the Wi-Fi, and it is still out. And that really gets me angry. But... And it gets me angry, especially because on Thursday, August 19th, there's a film that will be appearing on Netflix that's called Like Crazy. I'd like to tell you what this film is about, who stars in it, who directs it, so on and so forth. But I can't tell you that, and that makes me really, really mad. I'm just thankful that when I opened this computer, I was able to access Wi-Fi for the first 15 minutes of my show, and I'm able to see just this page with the uh, movies that are coming out on streaming platforms. But anyway, enough of my grievances. Let's move on. There are two films that will be premiering on Friday, August 20th on Netflix. The first movie is the loud house movie. This is a movie that is brought to you by a, well, this is a, a movie or rather a movie that's based on a Nickelodeon animated show called The Loud House, which was on Nickelodeon from 2015 to 2021. It was created by 
a writer, director, and producer by the name of Chris Savino, who also wrote for such popular and actually new classic animated shows like Dexter's Laboratory or Dexter's Laboratory, The Powerpuff Girls, and Kick Butowski, Suburban Daredevil. And he wrote for these films, or rather from these TV shows, pretty much since their inception or very close to it. Now, I am 38 years old, but I do actually remember Dexter's Laboratory and the Powerpuff Girls. I remember when they premiered on Cartoon Network, when Cartoon Network was beginning to evolve from being a network that just showed reruns of classic cartoons like the Looney Tunes, Popeye, and Tom and Jerry, just to name a few, and were actually beginning to create their own original shows. I do kind of miss the old Cartoon Network from the 90s, but again, I do think that Cartoon ne- it was inevitable that Cartoon Network would create its own shows, especially when competing with the likes of Nickelodeon and other, oh, the Disney Channel and other cable networks for kids. Now it's really fierce competition. Now, I'm not particularly familiar with The Loud House. In other words, I've never seen a single episode of the show. However, I think I will see the movie because I do think in order for movies to work that are based on TV shows, they have to stand on their own as movies. Now, some movies based on TV shows do that very well. The South Park movie is a prime example of that. A movie that didn't particularly uh, do that, in my opinion, was the Aqua Teen Hunger Force movie from 2007. I saw that movie after seeing a couple of episodes of of, um, Aqua Aqua Teen Hunger Force on Adult Swim. I saw that short. I didn't quite get it. It seemed to be an acquired taste, certainly very deadpan. But yeah, the movie was just kind of all over the place. It seemed like an inside joke throughout the entire um, movie. And I don't think it won over any new fans. You you either liked it because you were a fan of Aqua Teen Hunger Force, uh, Aqua Teen Hunger Force, excuse me, or you just didn't get it. And I think I fell into the latter category. But The Loud House might stand on its own as its own movie. I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. Another movie that will be premiering on Friday, August 20th, which I will probably see is a movie that's called Sweet Girl. Is this an American film? Is this a comedy? Is it a drama that's just uh, particularly ironically titled? I don't know because I don't have Wi-Fi. So I can't tell you about this movie. All I can tell you is that it is a Netflix original and and it will be premiering on Netflix on Friday, August 20th. So moving on. Let us let us see what is premiering on Amazon Prime on Friday, August 20th. There is a movie that's called Annette, which will be premiering um, as an Amazon original on Friday, August 20th. And this movie might actually simultaneously appear in theaters as well. It might. Unfortunately, I don't have the... Um, knowledge for you to tell you. And I really wish I could tell you what the film Annette was about. Is it about Marie uh, or 
I was going to say, is it about Marie Antoinette? But her last name's Antoinette, not Annette. Is it a French film? I don't know. But it's premiering on Amazon Prime on Friday, August 20th, and that is all I know. On Disney Plus, we have a couple of... um, There's actually one movie that is not a Disney Plus original. Most of the Disney Plus originals that appear on the platform are series as opposed to movies. And that's okay because uh, series are very popular these days. And actually, I don't talk about the TV shows I watch on this uh, show as much as I do about the movies I watch, but it the, the popularity of series these days, um, I think actually ties specifically into a famous quote by Roger Ebert, where he says that no great movie is ever long enough and no bad movie is ever short enough. And I think the same rule applies to TV series that appear on streaming platforms where we don't have to wait through commercials and we don't have to tune in next week for an exciting conclusion. We can just keep watching these series for hours at a time for better or for worse. And I certainly am one of these people. I sometimes take a break from watching movies to watch some of my favorite shows. So it's not a bad thing that more series are premiering on Disney plus, um, than movies, but I always look forward to the movies. I still love movies. I don't think movies will ever go away, but I do think that movies are at a crossroads right now, especially since the way we as people, not just as Americans experience movies have already changed drastically this year. I'm just saying. But on HBO Max, that's that's what happened on Disney Plus. Oh, I also, also should mention there is a film that will be ap- appearing on Disney Plus, and that is Aragon, which is a movie that came out in 2009. It's a film that was based on the book of the same name, which was a bestseller. The movie wasn't quite as well received, but if you want to view it for yourself and you have a Disney Plus account, check it out on Friday, August 20th. Now on to HBO Max. Let's see what is appearing on HBO Max for the week of August 16th through August 20th. Uh, As far as movies go, there is a documentary that is appearing on Thursday, August 19th. It's called Eyes on the Prize, Hallowed Ground. Now, I don't think this documentary is related in any way to the prolific 80s PBS documentary of the same name, also called Eyes on the Prize. That was about the civil rights movement, and that was a very detailed and intricate look at the pioneers behind the civil rights movement. I don't think that's what's going to be premiering on HBO Max on Thursday, August 19th, but if I have time, I will check it out. Also premiering on HBO Max on Thursday, August 19th is uh, the Looney Tunes Cartoons Back to School Special. This is, yeah, this is more like a special than a movie. So I probably won't review it for you. What's the difference between a special and a movie? Well, it's not just that specials appear on TV and not in theaters. That's not it at all. Specials are usually 
no more than an hour long. And I do remember, I mean, nowadays, since I'm a working adult, August does not have any um, negative connotation to me at all. Maybe I'm one of those people who can't exactly stand the heat, (laughs) especially down here in Tennessee. But I remember in August, particularly when I was in grade school, not so much when I was in high school, when August came about, I would get this dreaded feeling in my gut, you know, where things were not going to be carefree again. I'm sure this is a feeling to which just about every kid relates at one point in their life. And I do remember the last day of school before, or rather the last day of summer before the first day of school. I remember waking up kind of late and thinking, well, this is it. The last day. That was always kind of hard. But anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm changing the subject a little bit. This special might be fun to watch. I mean, it is the Looney Tunes. But then again, Space Jam, A New Legacy, has been getting some really bad word of mouth. I reviewed it a couple of weeks ago. And while I acknowledge that it wasn't nearly as good as the 1996 film starring Michael Jordan, I was impressed by some things. And I did find other parts of the movie funny. So... It wasn't a disappointment for me, but I can understand. I'm one of these people, I I lower my expectations for just about every film, or at least I walk into it with no expectations. And I'm I'm not one of those people who finds a film either innocent until proven guilty or guilty until proven innocent. I sit there, I watch the film, I may have my preconceived notions. Like, for instance, I have big preconceived notions about Ryan Reynolds, for example, because he plays smug in just about every comedy he's in. But, you know, even taking that uh, out of consideration, I I give every movie a chance. So maybe some people had too high expectations. I think that might have been the case. But in any event, even if you, whether you loved or you hated the, the Space Jam and New Legacy, I don't necessarily think that the Looney Tunes cartoons back to school special will necessarily disappoint you. I know that when I'm just watching the Looney Tunes as they are, they make me laugh and I love them. So I will check this move, uh, this special out, but I may not necessarily review it for you on this show. And another movie that is actually a special that's premiering on HBO max original is Marlon Wayans. You know what it is. The comedy special. Just what I was saying, in the, he was good in the movie Respect because he wasn't acting like a buffoon like he does in his comedy. He goes ahead and still tries comedy. Marlon Wayans is 49 years old. He needs to really grow up and stop doing this junior high humor, especially the racist humor. But if you want to watch it, there it is. I'm not watching it, or at least I'm not reviewing it for you for next week's show. Well, that's all the time I have for this episode of Words on Film. I always love talking about movies, and I hope you liked what you heard. If you did, please subscribe and rate the show and leave comments if you can. I would love to get your feedback, even if it's more criticism than praise. This has been Words on Film. I'm Dan Burke, and until my next episode, I'll see you at the movies.